Red Apple Media Podcast Network presents This is Protecting America. Now, here's Emmy-winning journalist Rita Cosby. Welcome to another edition of Protecting America. Big developments in Ukraine as Russia is now claiming it has, quote, liberated the besieged town of Mariupol in the eastern part of that country. And as President Biden once again sends mixed messages from the White House. And joining us now to talk about all of this is General Blaine Holt. He is a retired U.S. Air Force Brigadier General, also a former C-17 combat commander, and also a former U.S. Deputy Military Representative to NATO. General Holt, great to have you here on the podcast. Rita, it's an honor to be here with you and your listeners today. Thank you for having me. You know, so many important topics and huge developments happening regard to Ukraine. First off, how do you assess the situation overall? Russia is now trying to say they've, quote, liberated Mariupol. Mariupol is still fighting the Ukrainians there ferociously. But overall, where do you see the situation? So if we get down to the tactical situation, I think we're at a very big pivot point right now. We are at a place where if we can get our logistics correct and get the Ukrainians everything that they need right now at this point, we've got a very good chance to repulse the Russians and to beat the Russians out of Ukraine. And honestly, we need to do that because this doesn't stop here. And at the same time, Putin can say what he wants, but his lies, really, nobody's believing them anymore. Instead of liberating Mariupol, what he's really doing is setting up a starvation blockade around Mariupol to potentially starve out 130,000 people and 1,400 troops that are desperately holed up in that deal mill. When you hear exactly what you're talking about, that he's saying, you know what, we're not even allowing for safe evacuation. To me, I get so incensed, General, because I think of, couldn't there be something that President Biden could do? Couldn't there be something that NATO could do? Couldn't there be something that the UN could do to guarantee safe passage, at least for civilians and wounded troops? Well, there absolutely should be. And I think what's really alarming is we don't hear the UN or other world bodies standing up and talking about the UN declaration that we all signed on to in the articles called R2P or responsibility to protect. It's on that legal basis that the world should really be galvanizing behind these people that some people get on eggshells about calling this a genocide. Well, how many more people have to be killed before we're comfortable saying that that's what this is? And all these world leaders, ours included, need to be standing up and calling these atrocities what they are holding Russia's feet to the fire and, where necessary, expelling them from the world order because this is intolerable. And if it's tolerable for Russia, well, then what happens when China decides that it's time for Taiwan or Iran decides that really it is time for a war with Israel or something worse? No, great points, because there are so many other people who are watching to see how we handle this. Why are we not creating sort of even safe evacuations For the people in Mariupol, we're hearing, you know, it's more than 100,000 people trapped, especially that steel plant like you talked about. There's many people there, women and children. How come there is no world muscle to at least guarantee some sort of evacuation in this at this pivotal moment right now? You know, this is really troubling. And the absent piece here is U.S. leadership standing up in forms like NATO, shoulder to shoulder with other heads of state, 
really applying pressure and saying, this is unacceptable. This is a humanitarian crisis created by Russia, and Russia is committing atrocities against civilians. And if Russia wants any kind of consideration at any negotiating table anywhere, then it's time to stop this, stop these crimes, and create these corridors or even a humanitarian airlift to get all of these people out and fed because they're starving. They don't have water. They don't have food. It's very dangerous and it's very reminiscent of what we saw the Russians do in the rape of Berlin at the end of World War II. How do you read our president and his handling of this? So I'm going to take you to broaden this out a little bit beyond just our president and really his entire national security team. To be very blunt, I would say the past 14 months, they haven't really had that great a year. Starts out with a bludgeoning diplomatically with China. Moves on to witnessing the Russian troops last March starting to appear on the Ukrainian frontier. This utter disaster called Afghanistan after a 20-year war, it ends this way. And we're all horrified and we're still trying to get people out of there as we speak. And then we flow into this problem. So I'm looking at a national security team that looks more at what the downsides could be of any type of action, meaning they're on eggshells. Don't escalate. Don't do this. Let's declare what an offensive weapon is as opposed to a defensive weapon. I've got news for you. Um, Actually, uh, if you had a weapon and it's a rock, the rock is offensive and defensive, as it turns out. So (laughs) if it's a MiG, it's both. So we parse these words and we hand ring over these things because we don't want to escalate. And meanwhile, the enemy... Putin and his army are escalating nonstop and they're committing these atrocities. And so I feel like our national security team needs to stop what they're doing right now and take a review. And maybe the president needs to get in there and take an assessment about who's on the team and whether this strategy over the last 14 months has worked out. And how do you see this working out for Ukraine? So Ukraine is devastated. We're looking at $60 billion in infrastructure damage alone to the country. This country is going to be crippled for decades. And its people will be marred in all kinds of ways from the losses of lives and their families, the horrors of having children abducted, taken to Russia and adopted off. If you think that that doesn't leave a bludgeoning scar in a people for generations to come, it does. And lives and limbs shattered. And so the Ukrainians will need global assistance for decades. And that should be a really great lesson to all of us as we sit here doddering about terms that who would have thought we would say the word World War III so much these days and nuclear war so much these days five years ago. You wouldn't have even imagined such a thing. And so here we are. And what I really try to encourage everybody to understand is that Ukraine is a place where we should stop this now. It's almost like a tourniquet. We've got to stop it here because the horror only grows from here if we don't get it right in Ukraine. How concerned should we be about Vladimir Putin and his testing of sort of advanced nuclear weapons? I mean, he talked about these missiles. They did the test launch. It was basically a thumb in the nose to the world community saying, hey, we have these weapons. Don't you dare. If you go back to around the time that Crimea was taken, a lot of people don't may not remember, and it wasn't so widely reported, that the Russians were breaking the INF Treaty uh, regularly. And we really didn't check them on that. In fact, it took President Trump just to kind of say, OK, well, if you're not going to abide by this treaty, then we're out of it as well. And this ratchets up. Now, let's look at what Putin has done recently on the nuclear front. So from a communication standpoint, he's messaging his own people in the world through his controlled Channel One TV station that 
their view is they're already at war with NATO. They're already in World War III. It's already started. And he's conditioning both external and internal audiences for that concept. Meanwhile, in actions, what is he doing? He's testing missiles that can carry nuclear weapons. He's conducting exercises in the Black Sea that practice the delivery of nuclear weapons to the Crimean Peninsula. And so he's getting all these things congruent to transmit this punch. My worry is, is that there is a real option on the table for him that we would, you know, in military parlance, call a decapitation strike where a tactical low yield weapon is used in Kiev or some other city of strategic importance. And let's remember that here comes May 9th, where there'll be a lot of pressure on Putin to produce some sort of statement about results in his war against Ukraine. And so I absolutely sense that there is going to be a shoe that drops. I hope it's not nuclear. But he has certainly shown throughout this entire war that he's just ratcheted up and ratcheted up and absolutely has no deference for civilian lives at all. So do you believe that nuclear or chemical are on the table? I do. I really do. And it's troubling. I think that no one should count out what Vladimir Putin is now capable of as he grows more and more frustrated with the condition of his army, his air forces. It's very likely that he's assessed now that conventionally he cannot take the Ukraine. There is no possible way that his army matches up. And if you look at his army internally, they're disintegrating. You have people fleeing the battlefield, running, deserting. You have folks who have fought in Ukraine who are back in Russia and they won't take contracts. And then he's stamping traitor into their passport. That doesn't engender a lot of morale, by the way. <laughs> Nobody says, oh, boy, I want to come to the cause if they're going to do that to me. So and then Putin doesn't really understand the technology of today where he doesn't operate in a vacuum. His people can get news if they want it. And the younger generations in Russia are certainly getting availed of what their atrocities that are being committed in Ukraine and their names are right now. And they're finding out that there have been casualties like you're talking about. There's also been reports. We know that a number of people like in the oligarchs and even allies of his, some of them, there was a good ally friend of his who was basically overseeing Ukraine. He's now been captured by the Ukrainian forces. So there's an erosion. But the question is, how much do you think the Russian public really gets of the reality of what's happening? Right. I think it's generational. I think that the younger generations actually are very savvy about VPNs and proxy servers and, you know, platforms like Telegram where you can go scrape and get news. I also think there's a very vibrant cell phone exchange on texting SMS real time between Russian forces in Ukraine using those towers to transmit words to their families. And so this idea that Russia doesn't is completely cut off from information. No, no, that's not true. They're getting information. But what I'm finding out from my Russian sources is that a lot of Putin's circle grows smaller every day in support as these people learn the truth about what's happening. Now, speaking of nuclear capabilities, there are reports that President Biden and his administration had canceled a program, or at least shelved it temporarily, a program that would have allowed us to basically have similar nuclear capabilities that Vladimir Putin has been showcasing in the last few days, these sort of high-tech missiles. What's your reaction to that? Is there a sense of we're not ready? You know, you make a really great point. We should never make the assumption that we're looking at the, the Russian arsenal and the things that we should be concerned about that the Russians have to use. And while we got a taste of hypersonics, I can tell you from my sources on the ground, there are things in the Russian arsenal 
that would make you think that nuclear weapons are not so bad. And there's a lot of things that they can do on the world stage. So I get that we have to manage this conflict very carefully. But again, what Putin has proved is that transmitting weakness to him emboldens him and that he only wants more of it. I can't help but go back to the days when Kabul fell and wonder what was going on as he started to make that calculation about Ukraine. He saw an opening is what you're saying. He saw a disastrous withdrawal and also us leaving Americans behind and said, "Okay, well, this is the time to strike in Ukraine. Right. There'll never be a better time. Look at how this ended in Afghanistan. And if he really is, he's 70 years old. There's reports of thyroid cancer. This is a man who's very strategic. He has this historical sense about him. He thinks of Peter the Great and his relationship to him historically. He's got a sense of destiny. He was outraged and insulted when the CCCP fell and has this sense of him being responsible for fulfilling, restoring the Russian empire. And so when you add those things up and then you look at where we were in the last year and how Kabul fell, I just can't help but wonder that the calculation on his side was this is an optimal time to go after what I've been working on for years. To that end, General Holt, do you think we made an enormous mistake of not putting military might in before he moved in? Because now it's now we're spending, yes, a lot of money. We're putting in more military hardware. But many people are saying, had we really beefed up appropriately beforehand, maybe he might not have invaded. Yet he smelled weakness in Afghanistan. We didn't do anything when he amassed, you know, 70,000 troops at the border. I'm talking of Ukraine later. Now we're reactive. Well, you're exactly right. And I, I want to be very clear at the front part of this kind of response is that these policy decisions are very difficult decisions. These are, you know, oftentimes our policymakers and agencies are choosing and selecting policies from just a list of bad choices where a lot of bad things could happen. So I want to be forgiving on that side. At the same time, I want to come back to when we first started seeing Russian military forces out of their exercise schedule showing up on the Ukrainian border over a year ago. That was the time, in my opinion, to start exacting measures, sanctions, costs, the information campaign. And I, I'm not going to just try to turn myself into a Monday morning quarterback, but I will say that I think we could have got to a much more peaceful, less costly outcome for Ukraine had we been much, much more proactive. And certainly we had that chance 14 months ago. Yeah, everybody feels like had we done it, we could have thwarted. In fact, many people have said, you know, if President Trump was in office or other presidents in office, that maybe this wouldn't have happened. You know, he would have picked up the phone or he would have added military might. And then it would have been a clear message to Putin. Don't you think about it. And now we're kind of chasing, chasing the dog, you know. We are. And honestly, the Russians, the Chinese, the Iranians and the North Koreans all have one thing in common. They respect strength. They don't respect weakness. They take advantage of weakness. And we have learned this lesson over decades with these four countries. And so it's not too late to reassess, to take stock of where we are right now and where our opportunities and our threats are, and then change our strategy. And this is one thing that, you know, throughout history, America's been really, really wonderful at is the enemy thinks they can predict us. And then all of a sudden we turn on a dime and they can't predict us anymore. And one of my favorite quotes from, you know, uh, Winston Churchill 
was always, you know, you can always trust the Americans to do the right thing after they've tried everything else. <laughs> so is it possible, do you think, at this moment, we can change our strategy and help Ukraine win, General Holt? I do. And we're seeing opportunities being put in front of us right now. Because here's the thing. You can say, this is my strategy before the war starts and say, I have a non-escalatory strategy. I just don't want this to be escalated. Okay, great. But it's a dynamic situation. The war happens. Things change. We see war crimes. We see atrocities committed. We see an unrelenting enemy that has no good faith in them to negotiate any kind of peaceful settlement. So you should seize those moments as opportunities to start putting things you took off the table back onto the table. Meaning, did we say a no-fly zone was not going to happen? Well, now we're not so sure. We don't have to say one is going to happen. But we can say that, you know what, we're going to start thinking about that again. And, you know, maybe the logistics spigot was at half strength. We're going to go to full strength now. And we're not so sure that the MiGs were really escalatory. Maybe now they're really just bomb trucks and they need them real bad and we're going to send them to them. So you can start adding back cost impositions to your enemy to say, you're doing this in Mariupol. We now recognize that what you're engaging in is a genocide against the Ukrainian people, and we won't accept it. In fact, we can't accept it under what we signed for at the UN. And we're going to now start turning things up on you with these measures. That's our opportunity right now. Do you think that President Biden has it in him? Well, you know, it's not just President Biden. I have concerns as a team. They're in a defensive crouch and they're very focused on. But if we do this, a bad thing could happen. I went through this in Crimea when I was the the logistics director for European Command. And we were all kind of arguing about what kind of advice to give the president. And as kind of an outlier, I was, you know, if we keep focusing on all the bad things that can happen, we're going to miss the opportunity to focus on the good things that can happen. And so, you know, this is one of my points about the harpoon missile system. Get them harpoons because every Russian Navy ship that sinks saves thousands of lives in Ukraine, in my estimation, because it takes the heat off of the way that the forces are arrayed in the country. And so I do think that our national security team would do well to reassess what they're doing and be very critical of where they're at. I applaud a SecDef Austin measure to come to Europe, sit with allies, and kind of take a look at where we're at as a defense establishment. But we need to see that across our whole government. President Biden came out this week and said, you know, I don't see a scenario where Vladimir Putin will take all of Ukraine. And many people were surprised, General Holt, because they were saying, shouldn't the answer be, I don't see a scenario where he will take any of Ukraine. How do you react to that? Did that open the door just like when President Biden made the comment, the gaffe, and said a minor incursion, basically? If he does a minor incursion, maybe we won't do anything. Did it open the same door here, in other words, to get some of Ukraine? (laughs) Well, let me make it very simple. (laughs) Since I've left military service and now I'm in business as an entrepreneur of startups, one thing that I've learned for sure is never pre-negotiate a deal and never pre-negotiate on behalf of a partner if they haven't given you permission to do so. So I'm pretty confident that President Zelensky does not share that view that President Biden shares. And President Zelensky is actually the head of state over that sovereign nation that prefers to be sovereign here on out. So the point being, we don't want to transmit to the Russians that there's some sort of off-ramp that includes something that the Ukrainians wouldn't, at this stage of the game, wouldn't accept at all because of all of the costs that they've had to bear in this thing. 
And so, no, I don't think you pre-negotiate. I think the best answer here is to say Ukraine is a sovereign nation. The world is standing by Ukraine to see that those borders are reestablished and respected. Do you, you think it opened the door to some gray areas like the minor incursion? It might have in the past, but I think that President Zelensky has done a very good job standing up for himself and his own country and making sure that Lavrov and Putin understand that no one speaks for Ukraine. Zelensky doesn't have an agent in between. So that, to me, kind of saves the day here. But every single thing that the U.S. president says matters. And so you can easily see where the Ukrainians would be frustrated. I know, you know, my sources on the ground in Ukraine were very frustrated at the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff's comments about this is going to be a multiple, many years protracted war because they're saying, really, America says they have no influence on what's going to happen here. And then the other part is, have people not noticed how quickly our country is being erased? We don't have years left. So the Ukrainians want to see the United States not only stand by them, be congruent with their statements, and to get their hands on the logistics and the care and the healing that is needed for this country that has just been ravaged. And finally, General Holt, do you believe that this could drag on for years? Is there any sense of how long you think it could drag out? Maybe I'm an outlier, (laughs) but right now my analysis, and I'm going to give myself a disclaimer, it's subject to change, but my analysis right now is the Russians potentially already have lost half of the troops that we lost in all of Vietnam. I don't see this thing having the runtime past the fall. It could, I guess, I suppose, if we're only going to help the Ukrainians out to achieve stalemate and keep the fighting going on forever. But we're seeing hundreds of thousands of people get killed. And so I don't see this going on. What I would warn everybody is, is that if it doesn't get finished here, I'm quite confident it doesn't stop here. There are other objectives in the world and other consequences that will be paid if Ukraine falls outright. Absolutely. And that's why the world is watching and American leadership and world leadership is so pivotal right now. General Blaine Hold, retired U.S. Air Force Brigadier General, former C-17 combat commander and also former U.S. Deputy Military Representative to NATO. Thank you so much for your valuable perspective. And thanks for all you do to keep America and the world safe. And thank you for your service to this country. Thank you for having me, Rita. It was a joy. And everybody, I'll be back soon with another great edition of Protecting America. And of course, you can catch me every weeknight, 10 p.m. to midnight on the legendary WABC Radio. This is Rita Cosby, and thanks for all you do to protect America.